Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And Sarah and I saw something about the newest Disney princess, the Frog Princess, the other day. And it got us thinking about our favorites. Mine is Belle from Beauty and the Beast because she reads. Mine is Snow White because I think I kind of look like her. And we realized there are a few Disney princesses who rarely make it onto the Disney princess branded items. The montage of all the princesses. Right. And one of them is Pocahontas. Yeah. She is certainly a princess. She's got a Disney movie, but she never makes it onto the t-shirts and, I don't know, the cake plates, stuff like that. So you know what? We're going to give Pocahontas some attention today. That's not her real name, by the way. It's a nickname for her that means little wanton or mischievous one. So a bit of a spicy little nickname. Yeah. Her real name was Matawaka, and later she went by a Christian name, Rebecca. But um, yeah, the Pocahontas nickname was apparently apt. She was really bright and curious and would get into trouble with little pranks and such. And she was born around 1596 near present-day Jamestown, which is why she comes up so much in American history, because as we'll learn, the Jamestown settlement is quite a story. Yeah. So Pocahontas was the daughter of Powhatan, who was the chief of the Powhatan Empire, which is no small matter. It consisted of 28 tribes in the Tidewater region. And at the peak of his power, it's estimated that he ruled between 13,000 and 34,000 people. And Pocahontas's childhood, one of the little details you gave that I liked was that she used to do cartwheels with the boys of Jamestown. And like all the girls in her tribe, she went without clothing until puberty. Yeah, so Powhatan's people, who were known by the colonists as Powhatan Indians, lived in villages of a few hundred inhabitants, and they would have cleared lands around this. They didn't have domestic animals except for dogs, so they didn't really have fences except for um, defensive palisades, which that proves to be an important fact, the the fact that they don't have fences. Um, and the Jamestown site, the settlers were looking for gold. Uh, that's really... <laughs> which, you know, because you can find gold out. anywhere, apparently. Guess what? You can't. Um, and the Virginia Company sent them on this gold hunting mission, sort of thinking that they would have their stores and everything would be great and they could spend most of their free time looking for gold. It really doesn't happen. But when they first arrived, they didn't really want trouble with the local Native Americans. And so they positioned Jamestown in an undesirable location. And part of this is just they didn't quite know what they were doing. But Jamestown is on a, a clear an area of cleared land, something the Native Americans had probably cleared a generation or two before, but it wasn't really good land. It's on a part of the James River that didn't have year-round fresh water, and that's Not a good never sign good. It's for marshy. Any sort of civilization. <laughs> there are really bad mosquitoes, so it's an undesirable place to start out. So Jamestown and John Smith come into Pocahontas's life when she's about 10 or 11. They settled there around 1607. And this is where the history starts to turn into just stories because what you probably did learn in your history class. Right. Pocahontas, this lovely Native American girl, rescued this guy, John Smith. Yep. 
1624, John Smith wrote this bizarre third-person account of how when he was exploring the Chickahominy River in a canoe with two other people and two Indian guides, he was intercepted by Powhatan's powerful brother, and Pocahontas draped herself over him and saved him from the Native Americans who were going to kill him. At least this is the story I learned. He was going to have his head beaten in by a stone, and a lot of people have learned that myth in school or potentially embellished story, but um, it, there's not a whole lot of real basis to it. No. There are the two camps, the people who think it was a bit of misinterpretation and... Yeah, maybe he didn't quite understand the ceremony that was going on, and then right. people who think he completely made it up. And in the misinterpretation camp, um, there's one theory that's kind of based on tenuous evidence, that uh, Smith was actually in an adoption ceremony. So what he thought was an execution, he was going to have his head hit by rocks, was Just actually a kind, of ritual. kind of hazing, actually. Uh, a ritualized death and a symbolic rebirth. And Pocahontas, who's an important person, she's the chief, the head chief's daughter, uh, is in the position of converting him, making him a brother of the tribe. And for someone of Smith's stature, it's more likely that execution would have involved flaying, burning, and dismemberment, not just a knock on the head. So I guess Smith's lucky on that count. The other camp is the John Smith completely, entirely made up this story camp, which is the one that Sarah and I are in, I believe, because his accounts in general are fairly unreliable. He likes to set himself up as the hero who doesn't. And this prototype of the frontiersman, too. Right. And his story wasn't published until seven years after her death, after she's already famous. So that would have, you know, made it a bit more sellable. Well, and he gave an account of the capture only a few months after it happened in something that wasn't for publication. And there was no mention of Pocahontas. So, you know, he describes how he's on the search expedition and how he's captured by the men, but Pocahontas doesn't come into the story. But one of Smith's favorite motifs in his writing, too, is being rescued by a lady. And um, the idea of a princess saving a hero is also a staple of medieval romance literature, which Smith right. would have been familiar with. So he had an idea of how he would like himself seen by the public. Yeah. And he wrote on her famous coattails with that story. Well, he wrote a pretty convincing story if it's made it all the way to today. Well, and the other story that people try to say is that there was a relationship between John Smith and Pocahontas, a romantic relationship. This is good for the movies or something. It, I, I even remember when I was a little kid learning this story Wondering who this John Rolfe guy is who comes in later. I always thought, you know, <laughs> how did he show Pocahontas up? and John Smith go they together? They were clearly supposed to end up together, but they don't, as you'll see. They were really just friendly, cautious allies, and she was very helpful to him. She was a little girl. We should say that too. She's only ten or eleven years old right. when they meet. Um, but yeah, they they are allies. She uh, takes the trouble to learn his language, and he learns hers. And she becomes a frequent visitor in Jamestown over the years. She'll bring food from her father sometimes. And she, even if the earlier account is not true, she does save John Smith's life later in January of 1609 when she warns him about an ambush. And then we've got a sad little interlude where Smith returns to England in late 1609 and 
relationships between the settlers and Powhatan just go down the tubes. And the English tell Pocahontas that he died. And so she doesn't come back for four years. She just disappears from the life of Jamestown. And this is a pretty dark time in general for Jamestown. Um, the At the beginning of 1610, what's known as the starving time, when the settlers just ran out of food and they ate dogs and cats, rats, mice, the starch from their Elizabethan Ooh. ruffs they could make into this crude porridge. And the more grisly details, they dug up people who had died to eat them. And the famous um, macabre tale of Jamestown, I'm sure most of us know, is the man who murdered his pregnant wife and ate her, or at least started to prepare her for eating. But Pocahontas comes back into the lives of the settlers in 1613, when Sir Samuel Argall takes her prisoner in exchange for English prisoners and weapons and tools that have been stolen from the settlers. So that's an awfully nice way to repay someone who's been right. so helpful. Kidnap her. <laughs> uh, it, Sir Samuel Argall had conspired with uh, Japazis, the chief of the Patawomic tribe, and uh, Palatan releases some of the prisoners, but he won't negotiate further than that. Well, probably because they're not very trustworthy. Yeah, he, he's probably seeing them as criminals. Um, and so Pocahontas gets taken from Jamestown to another settlement where she's treated like a princess. And she's converted to Christianity and given her new name, baptized as Rebecca. And then this is where her real love comes in, not John Smith, John Rolfe in April of 1614, who is the man she married with the approval of the Virginia governor, Sir Thomas Dale, and also her father, Chief Powhatan. And I feel like we should give a little background on John Rolfe because his arrival in Virginia is so miraculous. It's well timed. <laughs> he, he tries to come to Jamestown in 1609. It's probably good that he didn't make it because, as we all know now, 1610, we have the starving time. But instead, on his voyage, the ship is damaged by a hurricane, and everyone on the ship is working to haul water to keep it afloat, but they run aground in the Bermudas. And he and the survivors recover on the island catching fish, wild hogs, and sea turtles, better than the cats, rats, and dogs in Jamestown, I would say. It's been nine months on the island. And they build two small ships out of the wreckage and manage to sail to Jamestown May 24th, 1610. I mean, that's better than Robinson Crusoe, isn't it? It really is. I mean, I've so read if you get shipwrecked Crusoe, it's definitely Bermuda, better. At um, least you're missing the starving time. Yeah, so they arrive in spring of 1610. You can imagine these poor shipwrecked people are probably hoping they're going to come to a nice, cozy little Jamestown with everything set up and happy settlers. Welcomes with open arms. But, of course, it is right after the starving time. So instead, they find a bunch of skeletal survivors, or really not that many, only 60 of them have made it through the winter. And they're all pretty disheartened. So the shipwreck survivors pack up the starving time survivors, and they're going to wait until the tides are right, and sail for Newfoundland and try to hitch a ride back to England. And while they're waiting for the for the right conditions, a convoy of ships comes in, this time with 150 new colonists and supplies. I imagine they thought it was a mirage, probably, I at know. the time. It's, 
It's pretty wild. And, and imagine, what if they had left, too? What if they had just gotten out? And tried to hitch to Newfoundland? I have no idea. It would look like, for the new, or the new colonists coming, it would look like another Roanoke or something. So this is your history, Americans. But going back to Pocahontas, after their marriage, peace between the settlers and the Indians lasted for all of Powhatan's lifetime. Yeah, it was a non-aggression treaty. It was a real royal marriage, in a mm-hmm. sense. So Pocahontas and her husband have a child, um, Thomas, and in the spring of 1616, when their son is one year old, the family heads back to England um, with a group of other Native Americans and Governor Dale. And Rolf is selling tobacco. He's done quite well for himself since finally settling in Jamestown. He was a lucky guy. He was. He he smoked tobacco. It was a popular fad at the time. And while the Native Americans also smoked tobacco, they uh, they had a different strain that wasn't as popular with the Europeans or the colonists. So Rolf actually imports a special strain of tobacco from the Caribbean and Central America. And he grows this and cultivates it in, in Virginia and becomes a very respectable early Virginia planter. Making that money. So so when his family is returning to England, they're loaded down with tobacco. But it's also kind of a PR visit. The Virginia Company uses Pocahontas's visit to publicize the colony and say, oh, you know, look how well Jamestown is doing, and to win support from investors in James I, because they would like to send more settlers over there and perhaps develop that possibly very lucrative tobacco. So she, yeah, she entertains at royal events, and she's sort of a poster girl for the, quote, good Indian, um, just to make everyone more comfortable with yes. the idea of colonization. It's not savages. These are Indians who will come and help us in our journey to colonize America. But Pocahontas falls ill in the English climate, preparing for her return, and she dies in Gravesend at about age 21 of tuberculosis and pneumonia, and she's buried there. And her husband had been told that their son was also too ill to survive the voyage back to America. So he's left in England. Um, John Rolfe returns to Virginia, um, continues his his life as a successful planter. Their son, Thomas, stays in England until about 1635, and he too eventually goes to Virginia and becomes a tobacco planter. But it wasn't until about a century after John Smith's death that people started to get really interested in Pocahontas and the Pocahontas myth, because she's become a really important story in how America came to be. Yeah, something you learn about when you're studying the pilgrims and the first Thanksgiving, and Pocahontas always falls in there. And even later in the 19th century, Southern writers started focusing on her story as a way to promote Virginia's earlier origins, that Virginia and Jamestown were older than New England. So, you know, take that, Massachusetts. (laughs) But uh, one of the questions that historians have thought about is why did Jamestown prevail over Powhatan? Powhatan was pretty ambivalent towards the settlers. He, It really seemed that he thought they were too incompetent to make it and that eventually they would die off. They would starve. They would fail. <laughs> Which for a while there which looked like it was going to happen. I mean, that's 
yeah, you can see why someone would think that. But I guess what he wasn't reckoning on is that there was an inexhaustible supply of colonists coming over, and they gradually started to uh, just change the land so much that the Native Americans couldn't carry out their old way of living. They were fencing in property to raise domestic animals. They were growing tobacco, which tobacco is really hard on the soil. Um, the Native Americans would would grow crops for a while and then let the land lie fallow. And even honeybees, the Europeans brought honeybees with them, um, not really quite understanding the pollination effects. But no one seems to understand that when they introduce species to different places, no. as, as you'll find. I remember reading a lot about that with Australia when they decided they would like to, you know, bring all their nice English animals well, over. It didn't really work out. This is kind of weird. John Rolfe actually might have been responsible for bringing earthworms to America because in his tobacco lens ships, they had to throw over ballast, which was mostly soil and rocks from England or Europe, and the earthworms get in there and change the landscape of North America. I like that. I like the detail about the worms. <laughs> and as a complete sidebar here, um, the Virginia Algonquin language is extinct. No one has known to have spoken it since 1785. And there wasn't a writing system, so we've lost the grammar and the vocabulary. Mm-hmm. But a few words have made it. There are two contemporary accounts of Virginian Algonquin words, Captain Smith and the Jamestown Colony Secretary, William Starchy, gave us words like raccoon, terrapin, tomahawk, and moccasins, which I'm actually wearing my Minnetonkas today in honor of Pocahontas. It was was meant to be. (laughs) But the language revitalization of Virginia Algonquin is in full swing. Um, There were... Fifteen original Algonquin languages. Only two are still spoken naturally today, but several Algonquin communities in the East have efforts to return the languages to daily use. Which, as you know, English majors and people who are interested in language in general, I think is pretty cool. Well, plus, if the words are anything like moccasin and terrapin, I mean, I would like more of them. More words like that, please. (laughs) So, if you'd like to learn about another early settlement, you can go to our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com and look up Roanoke. And if you have any more Native American history you'd like to hear about, please email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. 